So please read with me the first seven verses, and we'll pray. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made just for the people you like. Be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is a good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come before you and we ask just the blessing upon your word. As we open it, God, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. So many things that are going on in our lives, we pray that you would remove those distractions. Father, we want to encounter you. We need your spirit to work within us. As we sang this morning that you would wake us up, Father, that you would wake within us. We know you live inside of us. But would you wake within us, Father? Bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. A life of prayer. A life of prayer. What does that really mean? How do you stay connected to God? Think of it this way. Many of us are very connected to our phones. They've gotten the phrase smartphones. I don't know how smart they really are. How many times do you think the average American checks their phone, you know, unlocks it with the passcode, you know, hits it to see what's happening? What do you think? Maybe 20 times a day? The average, this is the average, the study shows us 110 times. That's conservatively. ABC News says it's 150 times is the average that people check into their phones. You got to admit, it's pretty cool. There's a lot of things that you can do. I mean, even this morning during the Bible study, you could probably check some scores of some football games that are, that are happening. So if you want to check sports, you can get on there. If you want to send a text message, you can do that. I think probably that's the ultimate man communication. I don't really want to have a conversation. I just need to know this. So bam, I'll send you a text message. To sending a picture, apparently there's this app that's called Snapchat. Snapchat that's pretty popular. And guess how many pictures are sent just through that one app on one day? 150 million. 150 million. So we're constantly checking our phones for different reasons and different purposes. How about if we connected with God in that way? What if we prayed without ceasing in that manner? That in the morning, as we continued throughout the day, we're in fellowship, we're in communion with God, giving him thanks, giving him praise, lifting up requests to the Lord, lifting up people to the Lord. That's the challenge this morning. That's what Paul is challenging Timothy with, is a life of prayer. That's what we'll be challenged with as well. So let's look at verse 1. Therefore... I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men. 
This word, therefore, is important because it ties us back to the end of chapter 1. If you were with us last week, Paul challenged Timothy. He charged him to wage a good warfare, to have faith, to have a good conscience. Now in chapter 2, he's telling him how. This is how you wage a good warfare, by lifting people up in prayer, going to the Lord in prayer. The battle's won and lost in prayer, isn't it? So he's saying, therefore, based on what I've exhorted you in, then I am challenging you to pray. Also, there's a few words here. The first of all, Paul's saying this is the first of a series of several things. As we enter into chapter two, it's a new section in 1 Timothy, Paul's laying out the order inside of the church. At the end of chapter 3, he says, I've written these things to you so you know how to conduct yourselves amongst the household of God, amongst one another as you gather together publicly. You'll want to read ahead. It's a fascinating couple of chapters. The end of chapter 2 talks about women's role inside of the church, so read ahead, and we'll be talking about that. Chapter 3 talks about leadership inside of the church, and elders and deacons are important topics for us to discover, but the first topic of greatest importance is prayer, and this life of prayer. First of all, now we have categories of prayer. Supplication. What is supplication. Supplication simply means to bring something before God. It's a plea, it's a request, or bringing that before the Lord. Prayer is a very general term. We've titled it for any kind of communication with God. So it could be bringing a need before the Lord, thanksgiving before the Lord, it's prayer. Intercession is very specific. We're interceding on someone else's behalf. You know someone that's going through a hard time. Maybe they're struggling in their marriage. They're struggling in their job. They're unemployed. There's a physical challenge. You're interceding on their behalf. You know someone that doesn't know Christ as their Savior. You're interceding on their behalf. Intercession. And then finally, giving of thanks be made for all men. Now, does God really mean that? Does that mean that we're thankful for all people in our lives, even the people that are difficult, Even the people that annoy us, absolutely. Do people ever annoy you and get under your skin? Of course, right? It happens. Yet we're to be thankful for them as well. How could we be thankful for all men? It comes to a core value of realizing everyone's created by God. If I really believe that everybody's created by God, I'll find myself being thankful for them. Also, if I believe that God has died for them, They're made by God for whom Christ died. It causes me to be thankful. I don't know if you've noticed this in your life, but a difficult person, whether it's at work or in your neighborhood or inside of your family, inside of the church of God, over time, you realize, wow, this person has done great work in my heart and in my life. It was an irritant, but it caused me to press into the Lord. I never would have grown in this way if it wasn't for this person. So it's an act of faith on our part to give thanks for all men, for all people. And prayer is to be made for all. That's the emphasis here. It's supplication, prayer, intercession, giving of thanks. God wants all people to be covered in prayer. We tend on our prayer list to have our families be covered first. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. We pray for our spouses, we pray for our kids, our parents, our our brothers and sisters. But also, the challenge here is to expand that, to expand our prayer list, 
to weep over people that don't know Christ as their Savior. Maybe to get a globe this year, 2014, a world map, a world atlas, pick a country that you've never been to, and begin to pray for unreached people inside of that country. Yes, to even pray for enemies. Jesus instructed us to do that, to ask that God would work in their life. It's important that we don't leave anyone out in prayer. So the first thing that we're challenged to do is the call to prayer, the call to pray. How's your prayer life? I was challenged with that question. I was challenged with, am I praying for all men? I always find in my prayer life, there's so much more area to grow in prayer. Isn't that the case for you as well? There's, there's so much more to be connected with God. And this morning, I pray that we're stirred to take this verse and really endeavor to live it out. To say, God, I, I want to be a person of prayer. This is what I find in prayer in my life is it seems to be a spiritual discipline, a spiritual muscle. Because the more that I pray, the easier it is to pray. It's kind of like exercising. You start exercising, the first few times are really difficult, gets a little bit easier, a little bit easier, and eventually you begin to miss it. You're like, I didn't get my workout in today. I really don't know what that feels like, but I hear that that happens, right? <laughs> And prayer is the same way. You start praying, and first few days, it's very strange. It's very foreign. You know, is there a specific way that I'm supposed to pray? Do I need to include the these and the thous as I approach God? No, talk to God like you would anybody else, your best friend, as you pour out your heart before him. But what you will find in your life as you commit to pray, if you miss a couple of days, all of a sudden, I miss that communion with God. I miss pouring out my heart to God. We've all got to start somewhere. And as we pray, it will lead to more prayer. That discipline will lead to more discipline. In verse 2, there's an emphasis for kings and all who are in authority. Who was Paul and Timothy and the church of Ephesus dealing with at this time? What was their political leadership? It was Rome. Rome was the leadership at this time, not a pleasant group of people to be under as they conquered much of the known world. The challenge for Timothy and the church of Ephesus is be praying for your kings. Be praying for these Roman generals that are in charge of you. A difficult task for them to be able to do. Pray for the kings, pray for those who are in authority. Notice what Paul doesn't do in verse 2. He doesn't call for political revolution. He doesn't say we should take our time and our energy to try to overthrow the Roman government. He says lift them up in prayer. We have to understand as children of God, what was the mission of Christ and the mission of the Apostle Paul? For as many people as possible to know Christ as our Savior for heaven to be packed and hell to be as empty as possible. That's why Jesus came, to bring us into eternal life. So we have to keep that focus in mind. More than anything else, we're citizens of heaven. Our desire is to see people come to know Christ as their savior. I think of it this way. The children of Israel were taken captive to Babylon for 70 years. Out of Israel to Babylon. Jeremiah told them, when you're in Babylon, I want you to buy houses, plant gardens, and pray for the peace of Babylon. But remember that you're ultimately going back to Israel. That's us. This is a temporary home. And we care about our temporary home. There is an earthly citizenship and I think there's good stewardship and in being involved in the political process. It's wise to be able to vote. It's wise to vote biblical principles, dwell in the land, 
pray for the peace of the communities that we live in, but don't lose sight of this is our temporary home. We're going home to be with the Lord. Are we praying for the people that God has put authority over us? Who are our kings? We think of police officers that the Lord has has placed. Are we praying for them? Our mayor of our city, our city council, our governor, our federal leaders, our president, your boss. Are you praying for your boss and the leadership that God has placed over you in work? Because Romans 13 tells us about authority. I'll read it to you. It says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And all the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Think about that for just a moment. God had appointed the Roman Empire for his purposes. Whether Paul and Timothy understood those purposes or not. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. If I'm resisting the authority that God has set up in my life, whether it's a boss or it's political leadership, governmental leadership, ultimately I'm resisting God. Now there's a question here, isn't there? Is there ever a biblical time to resist the authority that God's placed in your life? Yes. If what they're asking you to do is contrary to scripture. So you have a boss that's asking you to lie, what should you do? You should honor God and you should be a person that tells the truth and not lie. If the government were to come and ask us to do something that's unbiblical, then we need to stand under God. We need to stand with God and there is that time to be able to do that. But if our boss or the government's not asking us to do something that's unbiblical, we need to come underneath their leadership. Our attitude towards the authority that God has put into our lives may be the greatest statement on our character. If we're a person that's always struggling with authority, we've missed something. We got, okay, good Lord, you need to reorient me. You need to break me down and, and rebuild me because I'm a prideful person. I, I'm always someone who can't accept authority in my life. What God's saying is if I resist authority that he's set up, ultimately I'm resisting him. Let's go on and look at the rest of verse two, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So if you're taking notes, first it's the call to prayer. Now it's the result of prayer. What happens if we start to pray for all men, specifically those who are in authority over us, it results in that we, it prayer is effective, lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Have you ever noticed as you begin to pray for your boss, even if it's a difficult boss, someone that's even unjust, after a period of time, they may not change, but your attitude towards them changes. Maybe it is the government that really gets underneath your skin. You decide Instead of complaining and being bitter and being angry, I'm going to pray, sincerely pray for those that God has placed over us. And over time, you find your attitude being different. You now have a peaceable attitude. You have a quiet and peaceable heart with all godliness and reverence. And even if there has to be civic disobedience, even if there's that time where we say, no, I have to honor God, it should be done with a very humble attitude, agreed? It should be done with this quiet and peaceable spirit, with godliness and reverence. We can't get to this place of having a quiet and peaceable 
heart and demeanor without communion with the Lord. It comes through prayer. It comes through spending time with the Lord. There's transformation that happens as we spend time in God's presence. There's nothing like it. As I observe society, society really desires to have a quiet and peaceable life, a content life. What seems to be happening right now is it's very trendy to get back to old things. Millennials, this 20s generation, is really enjoying getting back to things like gardening because they grew up in a time where no one did any gardening. Grandparents did gardening, and, and so now people in their 20s, it's really cool to go and start gardening and get back to, to those things and have chickens in your yard and do all these kind of things. And our family, we enjoy that kind of stuff. When we, we enjoy gardening. But I got to tell you, getting back to old things does not produce a quiet and peaceable life. Because if there's not something that's happened in your heart, you can be very angry out in your garden. Amen? I mean, it's not always quiet and peaceful out there as you're wrestling with these weeds and where do these weeds come from. And, and so really a quiet and peaceable life is not found in any other pursuit other than Jesus. And some are looking for it in gardening and organic eating and those kind of things. Some people are looking for a quiet and peaceful life and, and exercise. Some are looking for it in their career if they get to a certain point in their income and certain amount of this and a certain amount of that. Well, no, it, it's got to happen here. It's only Jesus and time spent with him that can result in this quiet and peaceable life. It doesn't mean that there isn't time for action, but it's our overall attitude. Jesus said that he was meek and lowly in spirit. There was a, a quietness about him. There was a peaceability that was about him, a godliness and a reverence about him. That's the result of prayer in our lives. Verse 3 for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. Good and acceptable. It pleases God. There's a smile from our Father when we have the proper attitude towards the authority that he's placed in our lives. When we have reverence and godliness and a quiet and peaceable life. So if it pleases God, this is something that we should aspire to. This is something that we should look to in our lives and saying, God, would you form me in this way? But notice closely, it pleases God, but it's not what saves us. It doesn't say that a godly and reverent life results in salvation. We're not trying to live this way to earn or deserve salvation. Christ's our Savior. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ that we're saved. In verse 4 down through verse 7, it really emphasizes now the heart of prayer. I think this is the crux of the matter, is the heart of prayer. Because maybe you're already feeling a little bit beat up and you're like, oh no, another message on prayer. My prayer life isn't what it should be and I've tried to grow in prayer and I fail and man, I'm there too. I've had those same experiences. And I think when we grasp the heart of prayer, God's desire behind the prayer, that's when we'll see prayer ignited inside of us to capture God's heart. Verse four, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. What does God want? What does God desire this morning? He desires one thing, that all would come to know him. John 3.16, probably the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's God's intent. It's God's desire. He wants everyone to know him. 
everyone to be able to have eternal life. So when we're praying, we grasp the heart of God. We see his love, his intense, undescribable passion for people to know him. And we begin to pray in this manner. What should we be praying for? We should be praying that people come to know Christ as their savior. We should be praying for our city council, our mayor, our governor, our president, our senators, our house of representatives, police officers. God, would you move in their life if they don't know you that they would be born again, that they would come to the knowledge of the truth. You can't come to Christ without coming to the knowledge of the truth. Pray for your neighborhood. If you walk through your neighborhood, walking through your apartment complex to get to your car, pray for peace on your street. How does peace come on your street through people coming to know Christ as their savior? I desire for my neighborhood to be a safe place for my kids to grow up. I don't think that's a bad thing. I want peace and security in my neighborhood, but ultimately more than that, I want people to come to know Christ as their savior. See, and this begins to confront our belief in the power of prayer. We do things that we think are effective, don't we? And if we believe that prayer is effective, then we're gonna go to God on behalf of the people that live around us, on behalf of our family members, on behalf of those that we've never met. Spiritual revival, revolution happens through prayer. The revolution that Paul is praying for and desiring is not political in nature. It's the revolution of hearts and minds. It's the one of kingdom impact. Church, gang, you've got to understand this. When hearts and minds are one for Jesus Christ, countries change. There's a revolution that happens in a political sense if it's rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ. That's the real hope for any country. It's the real hope for America. We should be crying out for America that people would come to know Christ as their Savior. I hope that it goes deeper than just wanting a better, stronger, greater America. There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but even more than just wanting a stronger, better America, a more godly America, we just want more people to know God, amen? That's our first concern is we're just saying, it breaks my heart that people are going to hell. It breaks my heart that my boss doesn't know Christ. It breaks my heart that there's political leaders that don't know Christ. God, we want them to know you and we begin to pray in that regard. It's the desire of God. Knowing the love of God and the desire of God is important because some may have an argument against God. How can a loving God send somebody to hell? We have to understand that God has done everything to prevent someone to going to hell. It's his last option to pour out that kind of judgment. He gave his son so that people could come into salvation, that people could believe. A loving God gives choice, doesn't he? Isn't that true? How loving would it be of God to say, you must believe in me, you must serve me. So God in his love, he wanted a real relationship. He gives us opportunity to receive him or reject him. So giving them that opportunity, some reject Christ. And the consequence of rejecting Christ is being eternally separated from God and going to hell. It's God's desire that all would come to know him. May God give us the burden for souls. Daniel chapter 4 gives us a great example of a person who's living in a very difficult situation and someone that's over them. 
I think this is really helpful for us. And you might want to write it down and go back and and look at it. Daniel, as I mentioned, was part of being taken captive to Babylon. He was a young man, had to go to Babylon, and he chose in his heart to not defile himself. He was around a bunch of corrupt political leaders. And you know what he did? He prayed. He prayed diligently. He would pray three times a day. Set aside these prayer times. I'm sure he was praying for those who were in authority over him. In Daniel 4, the man that was his authority was Nebuchadnezzar. God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream. God was speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. This dream was of this mighty tree that was cut down. Daniel had the boldness to tell Nebuchadnezzar, that's you. You're going to be cut down in your pride. Nebuchadnezzar didn't respond to that message from God. He didn't humble himself. Some time goes by, Nebuchadnezzar has the ultimate pride moment. He has the ultimate I'm the man moment. He's walking through his palace and he's saying, I built this by my power and my might. God's word was fulfilled in his life and he became like a beast of the field. He lost his mental capacity. He went crazy. He went out of his mind. He actually was out in the field eating like cattle. Did this for seven years until he humbled himself, came to the knowledge of the truth, When he did that, God restored him. I believe that was the answer to Daniel's prayer. Daniel was praying for Nebuchadnezzar. So you've got a difficult boss, pray for them. Ask that God would bring them to the knowledge of the truth. Do we believe that God could reach some of our political leaders that are very opposed to Christ and the things that the Bible stands for? That our greatest weapon in that battle is praying that God would intervene in their lives? I hope so. But I've got to be honest with you as I approach this section of scripture this morning. I'm convicted and challenged because I find that my prayer life is primarily based around my family, around this church body and praying for you and this community. And I'm not as diligent to pray for those that are in authority over us. And it convicts me and it moves me. Daniel 4 encourages me to be praying for those leaders that God has placed over us. Verse 5, there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. There's one God. And it's important for us to understand that God is one. There's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, but yet one God. But also when it says that there's one God, it's meaning that he's the only God, that there's no others. There's false gods, but there's not a plurality of gods for us to choose. And there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men. Mediator is the reconciler, the one who brings us into right relationship, only one mediator between God and men. This means that there's something wrong between us and God. We need a mediator. We need a reconciler. What's wrong? It's our sin. What is sin? It's to miss the mark. It's to not be perfect. It's willful rebellion against God, but it's also when we intend well and fall short. Everyone needs a mediator. Everyone who has ever been born has sinned. We're all sinners and fall short of God's glory. And because of that sin, there's this great chasm, this great divide between us and God. But God sent a mediator. God sent his son to bridge that gap for us. There's only one that can bridge the gap, and that's Jesus Christ. There's not many ways to the Father. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's his statement. It's exclusive. He alone is the one that brings us to Christ. So it's not that 
people have faith. It's not that people are well-intending. It's that they have faith in Jesus Christ. With things that really matter, don't you want narrow thinking? If you were to have heart surgery, I want narrow thinking. Amen? I don't want someone going, eh, you know. Well, what would you like to do with your heart? No, no, that's why I'm paying you all of this money. You tell me what I'm supposed to do with my heart. What if you got on the airlines? Let's just say SkyWest or Southwest or United. You, you pick the airline. And they said, you know, we're just kind of wanting to be more tolerant. We don't really want to be exclusive here. So how about you guys just all come up here and see if you can fly the plane and just see what's best, best for you. We don't want to have any hate speech by saying that there's a pilot and that he's going to steer, steer the ship here. I don't want any tolerance when I get on the plane in that regard. You know what I'm saying? I want the pilot to be in charge and say, we're going from here to here. If it's not safe, we're not going. When it comes to salvation, there needs to be exclusive thinking. If God's God, then he's the way for salvation and there's no other gods. There's no other way. Amen? So there's one mediator between God and men the man, Jesus Christ. This is the way the bridge is gapped. God became human flesh. Martin Luther put it this way. He sunk himself into our flesh is beyond all human understanding. The fact that Jesus sunk himself into human flesh is beyond all human understanding. It blows our minds. We think of illustrations and each illustration leaves us lacking. C.S. Lewis has an illustration of the incarnation. He was a great author, a great man of God of the past and he put it this way. Say you love your dog. You're a dog lover. You know who you are. You, You just love your dog. So you decide to become a dog for the well-being of all dogs. If you become a dog, then dogs can become like humans. And they can enjoy the human world. It's worth it to you. So you make this sacrifice. You become a dog. But now think about your communication with your beloved as a dog. Say it's your spouse, your, your kids, your friends. All you can do is wag your tail. That's the only communication you now have with your wife or with your husband or with your kids. It's great to see you and you just wag your tail because of the sacrifice of humanity becoming doggy, right? And Jesus, as he became man, his communion was limited with the Father. And we find Jesus over and over throughout his life spending time with the Father in prayer. He showed us how much he enjoyed fellowship with the Father. But it doesn't stop there. As you become a dog, as you make this huge step down and you leave things that you love like sports and the arts and cheeseburgers and steaks and all of these things and now you're eating dog food and having to suffer through a life as a dog, all of the dogs decide that you're the worst thing ever. And they brutally kill you and destroy you. But that's part of the sacrifice that has to be made for these dogs to become like humans. That gives us a little bit of an idea of maybe what the incarnation was like, but it's still nowhere close. That God would come in human flesh. He's all God, all man. God is sunk into our flesh. The humanity of Christ and also the deity of Christ. In verse six, who gave himself 
a ransom for all to be testified in due time. A ransom is paying the price for someone who's been taken captive. This still happens all over the world. Yesterday I read an article of a young man who got kidnapped in Pakistan. They sent a a ransom request to the family. The family chose not to pay it. This young man was then brutally murdered and his body was recovered. This, This does happen still in the world today. We have to understand that we were captive by our sin. We we're enslaved by our sin. But what's different about us is we chose our captors. It wasn't like our kidnappers came in and said, I'm forcing you. We chose sin. And as we chose sin, we are enslaved to sin. And Jesus came to pay that price, to be the ransom for our sin. So we could have forgiveness of sin and freedom for sin. He laid himself down. Jesus said that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Don't lose the context of verse 6. What's the context here of what Paul is saying is who gave himself a ransom for all. That's what's tying this all together. We're to pray for all and Jesus gave himself for all. And we begin to see people like this. Jesus, you died for them. You love them enough to die for their sin. Then we get to testify of Jesus Christ. We get to pray according to the heart of God. Now, if you're a Bible underliner, which I hope you are, is underlining your Bible, gave himself, gave himself. You can give money. You can give a house. You can give a car. You could even give your very life without giving yourself, but God gave himself. Think about that for just a moment. That's the love that God has for you. That's the love that God has for the world. He gave himself, and as he gave himself, it's to be testified in due time. The Old Testament leads up to one thing, the coming of Jesus Christ, God becoming man, Jesus dying for our sins, rising again, that the love of God, the grace of God, the gospel could be testified and it could be shared. Jesus rose from the dead, looks at the disciples and says, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Lo, I'm with you till the end of the age. The time had come. It was the time for it to be testified. We live in that time. We live in the time for the gospel to be testified. So we begin to link these seven verses together and we pray this life of prayer for all men. It leads to a godly life. It leads to a peaceable life, a a reverent life that then gives us opportunity to proclaim the gospel, that gives us opportunity to proclaim that the ransom has been paid. You've got a very difficult boss to deal with. Everybody's complaining about the boss And you kind of feel like when you go to work every morning, you're supposed to go, hi, Hitler, you know, (laughs) because of the way that they lead. And this is kind of the atmosphere that you're in. But if you choose to pray for them and God gives you that godly demeanor, all of a sudden your coworkers are going to go, hey, how come you have a different attitude? How come you're not complaining about the boss? How come you're not running them under the bus every opportunity that you can? And it gives you an opportunity to focus on Christ and testify the gospel. These things, they lead together. Our last verse this morning, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. 
I was appointed a preacher and apostle. Is it just Paul that was appointed to preach the gospel? Yes, God put a great calling upon his life, but we're appointed as well to preach the gospel, to share the good news with people. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. Paul summed up his message in one thing. I'm determined to know one thing among you, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's transparent in his letter to the first Corinthians, and he says, I came to you in fear and trembling. Do you picture Paul like that, where he was nervous? Do you ever get nervous about talking to people about Christ? sharing the word of God, well, you're in good company. Paul was nervous as he came to Corinth, and he said, I focused on this, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Speak the truth in Jesus. You're dealing with people, and they have questions. Focus on the cross. Well, how can a loving God send people to hell? Take them to the cross. And say, how could a loving God give his son to die upon the cross? How could a loving person reject God's son? How could you say that you don't need Jesus Christ? Someone asks you, well, what about the guy on the island in the South Pacific that's never heard the gospel, never heard the name of Jesus Christ? What's God gonna do with them? Well, one, I don't think anyone's really isolated to that point anymore. It seems very easy to access the people groups of the world today. But take them back to the cross and say, God gave his son to die upon the cross. So can we conclude that God is good based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Yes, we can. So will God give a good and fair judgment to this guy that's on the island in the South Pacific? Absolutely. Do you see how we always go back to the cross of Jesus Christ? Then when I get that question, I always like to throw in there, why don't you get saved and we'll buy you a plane ticket and you go to the island? You don't really care about the guy at the South Pacific. This is a smokescreen, usually, in this question. The point is, speak the truth in Christ. And then finally, Paul concludes with this, and it's worth mentioning, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Gentiles, non-Jewish people. To those who were Jews, they looked down upon the Gentiles. The Gentiles were the outcasts apart from Christ. They wouldn't even eat with Gentiles. Here's a little bit of strategy of taking the gospel to a lost and dying world. Go to the Gentile. College students, go to the Gentile on your campus. High school students, go to the Gentile on your campus. Brother and sister in Christ in your workplace, go to the Gentile. What do I mean? Go to the outcast. We all know the outcasts in our work environment, the outcasts on our street, the outcasts in our family. Go to the Gentiles. Jesus spent time with sinners, not the self-righteous. Go to that person that's enslaved in their sin, that knows they're messed up that just doesn't seem quite ready to fit in and bring the gospel to them. Paul hit a home run here by going to the Gentiles. Everybody was going to the Jews. He didn't even really want to go to the Gentiles, but God called him to the Gentiles. Paul submitted, go to those people that make you a little bit uncomfortable. Go to those people that are a little bit different than you and trust that they're the ones that are the most hungry for the love of God. The gospel exploded inside of the Gentiles. What if the gospel exploded in our community through the Gentiles? One of the things we actually pray for here as a church is that God would bring us the people that nobody else wants. And sometimes that doesn't make ministry easy, but that's the heart of our church. 
is Jesus loved the outcasts. We want to love the outcasts as a church family. So we're looking for those people that society rejects because God loves them and God's going to do a great work in and through that. God uses the weak and the foolish to confound the wise. A life of prayer. Where do we go this morning? In just a few minutes, we're going to get up and we're going to head out. Something draws you to your phone. Something draws you to the internet. Something draws you to read the news every day. And this is the encouragement for all of us this morning. Is may the love of God, the desire of God, the heart of God lead us to a life of prayer. May we really think about how much God loves people. He created them. He died for them. And then let's set reminders through the day. Say, just like I would check in with my phone, I'm going to check in with God. I'm going to commune with God. I'm going to pray for these people. I'm going to ask you to do one thing as an application today. Do it right now, is I want you to write down three names. And if you've got a piece of paper, three names. What are the three people that God is leading you to pray for? If you don't have a pen and paper, decide and write it in your heart. I want you to pick two people that are close to you. Two people that are close to you. Those probably come quickly. So I'm going to give you a second to do it. Let's take about 10 seconds, two people that are close to you. You got them? Raise your hand if you got them. Okay? All right. The others of you, you probably got them, but you're not going to raise your hand. You're too cool to raise your hand. That's okay. The Lord loves you too. (laughs) All right. The last one, the last one is this is somebody that just absolutely drives you crazy, okay? I'm going to have a little fun with you. No, I'm not going to do it. We'll just leave it at that. Somebody that drives you crazy, all right? Just drives you a little bit nuts. They may be a political leader, okay? They may be a boss. They may be a brother or sister in Christ that's very difficult to deal with. But they're sandpaper to your soul, amen? Okay? So you got that one person? All right, think about it for a few seconds. Those are your three people and commit to pray for them. And let's just watch and see what God does through that diligent prayer of those three people. Let's stand together and let's close in prayer. Father, we ask right now, In the name of Jesus, of your son, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you help us to grasp your heart for people, that you desire for all men to be saved. You don't want anyone to perish. You don't want anyone to be eternally separated. And we do pray for those that are in authority over us, God. We pray for our mayor, pray for our city council, our police officers, our governor on the state level. God, you know their hearts. You know where they're at with you. Would you give them the knowledge of the truth? If they don't know Christ, may they be saved. We pray for President Obama. We pray you would work in his life, the situations in his life. God, that he would come to the knowledge of the truth, that you would cause him to be a man that depends upon you and even calls people to the name of Jesus, calls people to to pray. May we see that change and revolution that comes through prayer. We lift up our bosses and those that you've put in authority over us. Would you bless them and encourage them? We lift up our community today, Father. We do lift up the Gentiles of our community, the outcasts of our community, the unlovable, the untouchable, Father. Would you give us a heart for them and may we take the gospel to them? 
Lord, we think of unreached countries. We think of people that we'll never meet in our lives. Lord, would you do a real gospel movement throughout these very difficult and unreached countries? In a way that only you can, would you give us a hunger for prayer? May we commune with you more than anything else in our life. Let's just continue to wait upon the Lord for a few moments. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, I hope that you hear this, that God loves you specifically. He knows your name. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows everything about you. And there is a divide between you and God. And Jesus is that mediator. Jesus came. He died for your sins and rose again. All who believe in Christ, the repent and believe and cry out, Jesus, save me. Be the Lord of my life. God's faithful to answer that prayer. Answer that response of faith and give you salvation. And he's gonna walk with you. It's gonna live inside of you and change you from the inside out. You know your heart. You know if you've never made that decision. And Jesus is standing at the door. He's knocking at the door of your heart. Only you can open up your heart to him. As we sing this last song, you come. There's gonna be a prayer team that's available. Very simply but profoundly, let them know I'm ready to receive Christ as my savior. Also, if you need prayer as a believer, as the child of God, we'd love to pray with you. And Let's end now worshiping the Lord, lifting our voice to God for his goodness. He's the ransom for our sins and let's, let's praise him, let's worship him.